All right, everyone. I think we are. Uh, I think we're live. So, welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm your host Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as always, by the Bad Mama Jamma, Carrie Smith. Who I'm going to make sure I'm unmuted this time, so that Hi. we can. There she is. Can everyone hear Carrie? me? I I can hear you. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> we're excited today because we we've been wanting to talk about this. <clears throat> for a while and actually we've been trying to book this guest for a while and thanks to Carrie's persistence he's uh, been very busy and I'm very grateful that he's taking the time to talk with us today because I'm very excited about it I'm nervous <laughs> <laughs> well you're gonna have to drive the discussion so don't be too nervous okay <laughs> um, Samuel Say is our guest today Samuel is a Ghanaian Canadian blogger and interviewer at slowtowrite.com he has written extensively on the incompatibility between social justice ideology and Christianity. His articles have been featured on chalice.com, statementonsocialjustice.com, ezrainstitute.ca, booksataglance.com, and Desiring God's Nightly Brief, and more. Samuel is also the community liaison at the Can Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, which is a pro-life group that uses pro-life apologetics and abortion victim photography to make abortion unthinkable in Canada. You can follow him on Twitter at SlowToWrite, S-L-O-W-T-O-W-R-I-T-E, SlowToWrite, or go to SlowToWrite.com. So Samuel, uh, welcome uh, welcome to Deprogram. Let me make sure you're unmuted before I even say that. There we go. Uh, wait. There we go. Welcome to Deprogram. <laughs> Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. Um, so I... Yeah. Uh, I first became a fan of yours. Like I said, I'm a little nervous because I'm a big fan of your writing. And I like the name of your website, by the way. It's it's based on um, the Bible verse about being slow to anger, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah I, I really like that. Um, but so I became aware of your writing, I think it was the in, towards the end of last year. Um, one of the first pieces I saw shared was... Um, this one that you wrote about so social justice and the gospel. And I don't know how much you know about this show, but um, the focus of it is kind of on my old ideology is what I call SJW ideology or is like the social justice belief system. And so I was in it for about 20 years. And then on this show, we kind of each episode, we try and de like untangle it a little bit sort of deconstruct what it is, because I think a lot of people, when they're introduced to this belief system, they're being told it's one thing when yeah. it's something else. So yeah. um, being a very recent Christian, like social justice in the church is just, it's, it's fascinating to me right now. Cause it's, it's mm. weird to be a new Christian and kind of see my old belief system creeping in. So um, that's a big introduction just to say uh, <laughs> uh, your piece social justice is a threat to human rights and the gospel just really struck me. It was the first time I had seen someone uh, in the church writing about my old belief system as it relates to the gospel. And for people who haven't read this, I'm hoping I can just read the beginning is so powerful. Um, I just want to read it. So bear with me one second. Um, you said in 1920, a young activist organized a public meeting in a major city Inside a hall holding hundreds of poor, underprivileged people, he delivered a speech describing how his ethnic people were oppressed and burdened, exploited and betrayed, 
excluded and bullied by a more privileged group. He explained the oppressors had infiltrated nations and become parasites for centuries. His point was that the oppressors destroyed nations because they were greedy and bloodthirsty for privilege. He made the claim that his people were forced into food shortages while the oppressors lived in excess. Then he said, quote, we do not believe that there could ever exist a state with lasting inner health if it is not built on internal social justice. And so we have joined forces with this knowledge. We realize that if this movement does not penetrate into the masses to organize them, then everything will be in vain. Then we will never be able to liberate our people and we will never be able to think of rebuilding our country. That, and then end quote, that social justice movement penetrated to the masses. The activists organized a powerful promising group of politicians. He formed a group to liberate his people and to rebuild his country. And five years later in 1925, he wrote a book called Mein Kampf. The activist's name was Adolf Hitler. And it just gives me chills reading, reading that opening. I, um, I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, what is your opinion on why, I don't, I don't think in school people really get an understanding of, at least I didn't, of Hitler as a social justice activist. <laughs> why do you think that is? Uh, I think it's in large part because many people aren't very familiar with the history of the term. Um, so I mentioned in the article as well, uh, in the article too, that uh, his rival, Winston Churchill, also used that term, but in a more positive sense, in a way to describe, um, ironically, his war against uh, Hitler. So for, for, for Churchill, it was social justice to fight against the, um, the wicked regime uh, in Germany. But then obviously for Hitler, um, his view was um, that because the Jews were more privileged um, than the average German, um, that, in it, that in of itself meant that they were an evil people and that they were gaining their privileged status or their wealth by treacherous means. So then for the Germans to thrive, they had to get rid of, um, of the Jews. And I didn't quite, really, I wasn't very familiar with that at all until I started doing more studying in history and understanding um, you know, Hitler's thinking. Um, but I think many people aren't very familiar and they don't really um, choose to study why, uh, at least in part, why Hitler um, hated the Jews. It was in large part because of him comparing the so-called oppressed status of the average German to the privileged status of the Jew. Sorry, well, I was that reminds me of something that I hear on a regular basis in the U.S., uh, just replacing some of those groups. Yeah. 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 One of the things that makes me think of is um, I notice a lot of times people in my, my old belief system have this automatic like reflex where they believe they, they will you will hear them saying I'm on the right side of history and stuff like that. Mm. Well, at the same time, they seem... Um, kind of blinded to the fact that that throughout history in order to to commit atrocious acts you maybe have to believe that you know what's good and you're doing it for the best interests of people and you're mm. doing it for a good reason mm. and i think this quote by hitler really illustrates that from his point of view and perhaps from you know people who supported him yeah. they thought they were on the right side of history at the time and and as i mentioned too all throughout european history before hitler um 
anti-Semitism was not uncommon. It was very, very, very common. So Hitler's view actually wasn't new whatsoever. Um, he was sadly the most radical, um, you know, uh, with that view. But so from his point of view, for the for many Germans, it wasn't at all um, surprising that um, that he hated Jews because it was very common throughout um, all of Europe, including, of course, to uh, co um, the communist um, re uh, regime also in in the Soviet Union. But that's also very much not talked about a lot too when people talk about communism. They don't quite, um, they're not very familiar with the fact that um, communism also killed lots and lots of Jews as well, including other people as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's weird that you can walk around with uh, hammer and sickle on your shirt or Che Guevara or even Stalin probably and no one would really blink an eye. But if you wear a swastika or have a picture of Adolf Hitler, which is abhorrent, uh, you will be correctly called out for that, but communism yeah. is given a free pass. Exactly, exactly. So Samuel, I want to come back to one of your other pieces in a second too, but I was wondering, one of my favorite questions to ask people, I'm just really interested is, when did they first, when did you first come into contact with this, this big um, iceberg of a thing that I call social justice ideology like when was the first almost like in a zombie movie when people are first they first come into contact with the zombie and they're like oh something's changing <laughs> the world is changing yeah. <laughs> that's the way i think of it when did you come into contact with this virus um i think it was actually in uh, 08 in uh, barack obama's um first presidential campaign where I came across, and everyone did at the time, um, clips of his pastor at the time, Jeremiah Wright, and uh, he was teaching Black liberation theology. Um, and in the, in the clips, it was all over uh, the media at the time, he was talking about Ameri the American government's supposed role in 9-11, Pearl Harbor, and uh, the HIV crisis. Um, and then in some of the clips as well, too, Jeremiah Wright, um, he mentioned that the American government um, were being systemically racist against Black Americans. And he, and he cited things like the three strikes rule, um, the drug war. He claimed that um, the American government actively pushed drugs into Black communities just to destroy them. Um, he mentioned also economic and educational uh, disparities. Um, all these things as examples of systemic racism. And at the time, before that, I hadn't heard that at all. I mean, I, I, I was very familiar with the perception, obviously, that many Black Americans and many Black Canadians um, uh, had towards the government. But that was the first time that it was said as firmly and as ferociously um, as, uh, as he did. Um, and then later on as well, too, during that same um, ele um, election, I was very much surprised by the number of black Christians, including black um, people in my church at the time. I, used to, I went to a Ghanaian um, church here in Canada and the number of people in that church and just black Christians across the world who loved Barack Obama simply because of the fact that he was black. That was it. Because on most other things, everything that Barack Obama believed was contrary to what black Christians uh, believed, but because he was black, they supported like, him. Like what are some examples? So for, exa so, so for example, uh, Barack Obama for three years in a row, I think it was in 01, 02, 03, actively um, campaigned against and voted against a bill that would actually protect 
um, pre-born uh, babies who survived abortion. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, and that really bothered me at the time because before my local church at the time was celebrating Barack Obama, um, just a few months before, a friend of mine had um, gone to an abortion clinic to, you know, to get her baby uh, killed, um, sadly. And the whole church was devastated by it. And yet, just a few months afterward, we're celebrating a, a guy who wanted to do that and more. In fact, well, until that point, um, Barack Obama was easily the most radical um, candidate in American history on abortion, and nobody cared. Um, but because he was black, they supported it. And I realized then that principles oftentimes don't mean much uh, when it comes to these things, uh, because people cared much more about their skin color um, and um, just supporting a black man than their, their supposed principles. So that was the first time I came across it. Then in 2014, 2015, that's when the infamous Ferguson riots uh, happened um, after um, a white police officer, Darren Wilson, shot and killed a black teenager, Michael Brown. And I was surprised by the fact that I seemed to be the only one in my circle who didn't agree with what many in the media were uh, were uh, saying about the uh, the event and the, and the riots, because the more I was looking into the the facts of the case, I was looking into the evidence and everything else. At the very least, I was saying, well, I'm not sure if, first of all, if Darren Wilson actually murdered um, Michael Brown, and I don't see any evidence that he actually did so because of racism. To me, that's a very reasonable point of view. But I was, I became, I became an extremely controversial guy within, <laughs> within my, um, within my circle. So that made me want to study um, the, because, because I, I, I was firm on my belief, but I realized that, wait a minute, if I'm the, if I, if I'm one of the very few in my circle who seems to have this view, then I need to investigate it extremely well. That way I can give a, a good defense for what it is that I believe in. So I started studying um, uh, black American history, um, slave, uh, the, the Ionic slave trade. I was studying Jim Crow. I read books by Thomas Sowell and Henry, Henry Louis Gates. I read uh, The Future of Race, uh, Life Upon These Shores by uh, Henry, Henry Louis Gates. I read, of course, classic um, Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell. I read Intellectuals on, uh, sorry, Intellectuals on Race and Intellectuals and Culture. And I just read as many books as I can to just affirm that my view was correct. And the more I studied, um, the more convinced I became. So that was the, that was my first, um, I suppose, interactions with uh, with this worldview. It's it's fascinating to me because at that time, when you you said something really important, you said you started looking into the facts and the evidence, and you started studying. And I just I'm thinking back to that time when you were doing that and I was, I was not a Christian and I was a uh, full blown. My religion was SJW ideology, mm. social justice ideology. Mm. And I didn't look into any facts and evidence about, um, uh, about Michael Brown, about the shooting, about, uh, I, I, we just, a lot of times in that echo chamber, you just, um, you start with a conclusion 
you start with the answer that you want it to be with like, this was racist and then you work backwards. And so people um, don't sit down and look at the facts and evidence and try to come up with a conclusion. It's not so much about a search for truth yeah. as it is. It's uh, it's about, it's not like looking at the world and trying to discern truth. It's about already having that answer that you want mm. and then working backwards and looking at the world and trying to pick out the things that make your answer correct. Okay. So I'm very curious because one thing I've become extremely convinced of is that sadly many black people who support um, that ideology they do so because of bitterness um, because um, the history of the slave trade and Jim Crow um, and just you know racist cops is is very much present in many black people's minds so because of that it's hard for them when they see a white police officer killing a black a black man immediately the first response is it's happening again and i understand that i'm sympathetic to that um but i understand why black people want to sorry why black people support um that ideology but when it comes to like white people like yourself i'm curious as to what was it that was leading you to want to accept that because you were saying you wanted to believe the conclusion before even uh mm -hmm. you knew the facts behind the case so what was that um well, I think part of it has to do with uh, one of the things that they put forward in that ideology is completely wrong. One, one of the things they put forward is that no, you don't have the ability to feel empathy for or to relate to someone who's a different race than you or a different sex than you. Yeah. And um, the fact that so many people, white people are, are pulled into this ideology because they want to do anti-racist work, I think dispels that notion. Um, it's a very, um, it, it's just like any human being. You watch stuff on the news, you watch a, um, a movie that tugs at your heartstrings, you're, you're told a certain narrative and it, you want to fight against injustice. Like you want, it, it pains you when other people are being discriminated against or being, um, um, when something is wrong, when something is morally wrong. So that doesn't, it doesn't know any race. It's not like, oh, that's morally wrong, but it's not happening to a white person. So I don't care. Hmm. And so, <laughs> so um, hmm. I think, it, I think there's something else to it though. So that's part of it. But I think the other part of it is that, um, is that some white people are uh, motivated by some kind of guilt or desire. It, they care more about, they care more about how what they what other people think of them than they do about actually yeah. fighting what's morally wrong. And yeah. so, if they are confronted with facts that dispel this narrative they've been told, um, they're not incentivized to drop the narrative because they don't want to be seen as yes. racist or whatever. And so they they want to be one of the good ones. Yes. And you know what? It's the Bible verse that. Um, that I think of when I think about, you know, this phrase virtue signaling that SJWs do. It's yeah. that verse about Pharisees uh, praying so they can yeah. be heard. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. No, I, th I think, I think you're right. I think uh, to be, I, I oftentimes um, label white guilt as a different form of white uh, supremacy um, in that oftentimes white people feel that while as a black person, my life is just so much harder than theirs. And, <laughs> and then they pity me as if I do not have the same rights they do. I, and I cannot overcome my challenges. They can overcome it, but I'm just too stupid. 
I'm just too much of a failure to be able to overcome it. So unlike them, I need the government to really, and other people to just really just hold me by the hand and help me, but they don't need it though. And they don't realize just how destructive it is and how offensive it is that, look, I can handle my own, I'm fine. Uh, my mom is one of the most incredible people in the world. She has <laughs> like, so just a very short story. She's been hurt by, uh, she's been married twice and they've both hurt her. And um, we, so I, I, I we're from Ghana. Um, my father uh, left her, uh, he ran away to Nigeria. No one has seen him since to, uh, to Nigeria. And then we were in Ghana um, on our own. My mom was raising myself and my older brother. And she did an amazing job raising us. And she gets married. She moves to um, Canada, where it's supposed to be a much better life, right? And it is much, a much better life. But until we get to heaven, no country is going to give us, um, you know, true, true peace and true perfection. So, uh, my, unfortunately, my stepfather abused her, and um, our it was serious enough that we felt that we absolutely had to get out of Montreal. That's where we were at initially. And then we moved to Toronto. And then in Toronto, we had, we had a shelter for, I believe, six months-ish. I'm about 12, 13 years old at the time. And um, I'm watching my mom's bruised face and, you know, and she took her a long time to heal. And she's working hard already to figure out how can she make life better for, for us. Wow. And anyway, so we're in a shelter. Then eventually we got a shelter where we pushed, we pushed into uh, government housing. My mom wanted desperately to get out of that. When she finally got a job, she um, wanted to move immediately um, out of uh, welfare, the welfare system. But the government saying, no, you can't, no, you need that for a while because you can't trust that you're going to be able to, you know, to provide for your family with what you're making, uh, with your work. But mom was saying, wait a minute, if I can work, why do I need the government to help me out? I don't want to come out of this myself. And she worked so hard that just after nine years of being out of the shelter, within just nine years, she bought her own home. Wow. Now, all her peers who didn't get out of the welfare system, they are still in that system. But because she wanted to teach me and my, and my siblings about the value of just being independent and not relying on others, she was able to overcome her challenges. So when white people are saying to black people that, look, we just don't think you can overcome anything unless we help you. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with helping people. Absolutely. But if it's coming from the point of view that you are almost innately unable to help yourself, unlike white people or other or Asians who are you know, not white, but doing very well for themselves, then it's destructive and it only helps. So it only helps to um to work against black people who want to overcome their challenges so um anyway yeah so i i, I white guilt it, it i it really gets on my last nerve because I, I cannot stand that um i don't want someone's pity um i want i'm someone's equal and i want them to treat me just as they would treat another white person or anybody else it's condescending i mean it's horribly condescending right um yeah i think it reminds me of the term i think uh, um I think it was George W. Bush, his speechwriter, coined this term, the soft bigotry of low expectation. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love that quote. It's a, it's a great term. Um, yeah. And uh, it really does describe, you know, Carrie and I actually were realizing that, I don't know if you're, I guess if you studied uh, how Blacks have been treated historically in the U.S., you know there was the period of 
kind of uh, racial Darwinism where they would characterize um, Africans as like closely related to apes and they had these yeah. drawings and they would like, you know, you know make that they're very, uh, you know, very racist caricatures. But, you know, we just came, Carrie and I were talking the other day and we came to the realization that this, a lot of the social justice ideology is the same thing without the drawings. It's yeah. uh, It's the same caricature of the emotional and intellectual abilities of blacks to deal with life on their own, just like anyone else can deal with life yeah. on their own. They have yeah. to be treated specially because they're these separate, separate entities who, you know, they can't, they can't deal with the world. So we've got to help them out in some way. And it's, it's horribly racist and condescending. Yeah. Carter yeah. said we were reading uh, real quick. We were reading some uh, curriculum that they're teaching. I'm, I'm smiling, but it's terrible. It's curriculum that they're teaching in schools to kids um, about, uh, about whiteness. And he, at one point he was like, wow, white supremacists must love this because it's, it's all about how like white people um, own logic and Ooh. rationality. Right. Yeah, all, all the good things are like, those are white. I'm like, well, yeah. wow, that's pretty horrible to say. One of the most one of the most fascinating articles I read recently, uh, well, maybe more like two, three years ago. I'm forgetting his name. He's a white nationalist, uh, all right guy. Um, you might be familiar with the name. Uh, he's a young guy, probably in his 30s somewhere. I'm forgetting his name. The only one I know is Richard Spencer, really. Is it him? Yes, Richard Spencer, yes. Okay. Oh, okay. And, uh, he mentioned that he actually loves white liberals because they're the easiest for him to win because their thinking is so close to his, but just that for him, his idea is, well, black people are inferior. I hate them. The white liberal is black people are inferior. I want to help them. So now it sounds like it sounds different until you break it down that way and you realize that, wait a minute, it's actually the same, which is why he's saying, if he can simply convince them that, well, hating them is the right way to go that's it because on everything else there are a lot of similarities there and that was extremely interesting because historically as as you said you know um black people were considered biologically inferior now it's more that we're emotionally inferior than white people um and the similarities are identical except with a different approach as to what to do about it Yeah. That's I saw a speech of his. I, I didn't see that interview. That's amazing that he that he knows that and will yeah. talk about it openly because and it admits it openly. And admits it openly. But yeah, the speech I saw of his, I was blown away because I, I thought, wow, this is just like my old belief system, except like you said, it, it's all identity polit- politics. The only difference is that he's saying, and this group I'm in is the best and exactly. everyone else sucks. You know, I'm like, Exactly. Well, the the danger here too, Carrie. It just this is something that I think pe- the left has to be really cognizant of, right? When you're, uh, let's say, you're a white male and you're told that the social justice ideology is the correct ideology and that's the belief system you have to adopt, and you're told that the only alternative is alt right Richard Spencer people, right? Both of those ideologies are telling you you're different because you're a white man. One is saying you're bad because you're a white man and you'll never be equal to everyone else. And the other one is saying, come on in white man, you're better than everyone else, <laughs> right? There's no one saying you're equal to everyone else because those yeah. are the radical 
people who are kind of, I guess, quiet. But yeah. <laughs> like, where are you going to choose? Like, yeah. if you're a young yeah. guy who's like, well, I can, I have to adopt a racist ideology. I can adopt one that will always hate me, or one that will elevate me to godlike status. Yeah, it makes sense yeah. where which way they go. Exactly. Exactly. I think exactly. they, I think they feed off each other. Definitely. Like they need yeah. each one needs yeah. the other one, but they're really yeah. similar. Um, yeah. Well, so I, I wanted to ask you about this other piece that you wrote um called whiteness blackness and christless yeah which also amazing uh amazing piece and in this one um I, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about the um so for people who aren't christian or for people like me who are new to it and i'm just catching up with mm. all the politics and drama or the stuff that the, there are a lot of things I don't know about yet. I'm just learning about my ideology kind of moving in. Mm. Um, and in it, you talk about the Sparrow conference and the fallout at the Sparrow conference. Could you just give like a brief summary of what that was? Yeah. <laughs> I almost shouldn't laugh about it because it was very sad when it what ended up happening, but it's also hilarious because <laughs> the whole point of the conference was to bring about racial reconciliation. Um, those are exactly what they said. And yet, at the end, one of the keynote speakers calls the conference racist. It doesn't get any more hilarious than that, in my opinion. And it's ironic because that's exactly what's happening. The more you push this agenda, the more you're going to divide people and the more you become you know, more racist. Um, so yeah, so, so that was a, a Christian um, organization um, and uh, an event they were holding to, you know, in their mind, accomplish or bring about racial reconciliation. And uh, one of the guest uh, speakers there, Akemeni Wuan, um, she started talking about whiteness and um, saying that white people need to divert away from whiteness. Now, if you're familiar with those terms, you know what those terms mean. Um, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a racist term. Now, again, they wouldn't say it's racist. Um, but the ideology behind it is racist. It essentially says that if you're a white person, you are naturally racist. And you need, like, if you don't want to be a racist white person, you need to actively fight against everything you know, and you need to fight against almost your nature to adopt an, uh, anti-racism or to, to adopt, um, um, you know, they're, they're thinking, you know, when it comes to you know, their views on politics and, or for example, not voting for Donald Trump because she mentioned she mentions at the end there that that's one of the examples uh, of whiteness if you vote for the wrong political person. So, um, so yeah, so, so, so she goes on this, um, she, she says all these things and naturally it leads to chaos um, where some, some people um, left uh, her talk or the, it was an interview, she left the, the interview and then on social media afterward, um, she got pretty angry and she was um, calling the organization racist. Um, and that event, that whole situation, just really shows, um, at least I hope, many people a picture of as to what's really happening in society and especially in the church, where it can never be enough. It, it, it's, it's impossible to completely um, get away from racism with this ideology. Um, and it's sad to me, and I mentioned, I think in your article, that five years ago, we were much more united as, as the church on race and ethnicity than we are now. Um, a friend of mine asked me actually, 
you know, who are the extreme people pushing uh, this social justice ideology in the church. And I said, to be honest with you, it's becoming harder and harder to figure out who's the extreme. Um, you know, so some would definitely say that Kevin Owan is uh, on the extreme level. But to be honest with you, five years ago, it was easy to tell who was extreme and who wasn't. Now, even mainstream people within the church are pushing reparations in the church, saying that wow. if you, saying that if you if you are a white person and you have truly uh, you, you truly care about repentance and reconciliation, you should support repentance. Sorry, uh, support uh, reparations. Um, many are saying that the church as a whole and um, the American government is racist. Initially, five years ago, it was simply that, well, cops are intentionally killing black people. We need to stop that. That was mostly what it is within the church. Now it's become much bigger than that, naturally. It always is. It's now become, um, you need to make sure you're quoting black people um, you know, when you're teaching the gospel, that you now also can't pray for your president because it hurts people who are black. Oh, I saw that. Like, uh. It's becoming so much bigger that I think what many people intended for it to be. And that's the whole point because this ideology is destructive, is divisive. It's never going to unify people. It never does. Can the I way- just read a quote from hers that you have in this article? Because yeah, yeah. I think you you uh, you were nice to her when you described how racist she was, <laughs> she was just now. <laughs> I mean, this the, the quote is, because we have to understand something. Whiteness is wicked. It is wicked. It's rooted in violence. It's rooted in theft. It's rooted in plunder. It's rooted in power, in privilege. That's that's about as overtly racist as I. I mean, can you imagine if someone said, "We have to understand blackness is wicked"? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it's so obviously racist. One one but, thing I'm hoping that maybe both of you can do. I look. I'm I'm not uh, religious, but I, I I was for a long time, and my understanding is that my assumption is that a lot of Christians they don't know you guys are talking about behind the scenes like conferences that people have about theology and how to run their churches a lot of people just go to church listen to what's said and go home maybe have bible studies yeah can you give an overview of what's happening in terms of social justice convergence in the churches and where it's happening and maybe what's driving it because i don't i don't know that everyone even understands the context of all of this right now yeah, hmm. that's hard to kind of break down um, in a simple fashion. But um, so, as I mentioned, it, it all really so okay. So fascinating. It, it's mostly happening within. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but reformed circles. So these are Christians who believe in reformed theology. Um, that's actually fascinating. Where the talk is uh, is really happening at, uh, as far as I know. I, I know it's happening elsewhere as well too. But and it's um at its core the, the strongest um the strongest part of the movement is happening within the reform circles and i think it actually stems from i think um so reform theology has um a fascinating history where perhaps more than any other protestant movement uh, or protestant um 
you know, church or, or, or sections. For a long time, it, it was the least perhaps ethnic diverse, uh, uh, ethnically diverse uh, amongst all Protestants. And so, so about 10, 15 years ago, we, you had a huge uh, move, a huge rush of black people like myself becoming reformed. Um, and I think what happened was when we entered these churches, these so-called white churches, initially there was complete um, unity. There, was, there weren't any real problems. I, and I'm pretty familiar with this because I have lots of good friends um, in Canada, in America, and in the UK. And our experiences were very, very, very similar. But I think over time, I think many of the churches didn't prepare for the political and, and ideological differences that a lot of we Black um, people were coming into these churches with. So, for example, George Whitfield um, and Jonathan Edwards are two of perhaps the most admired and revered reformed um, leaders in, in, you know, in, in over the last two, 300 years, but they own slaves. So when that's not addressed initially, so when pastors and authors are talking about how great George Whitfield was and how great Edwards was, and you're not addressing the fact that um, they own slaves and not Edwards, but Whitfield actually was a racist. Um, now, that shouldn't be too surprising because Christians are sinners too. Um, Christ died for sinners. Um, and so when that's not being addressed, when people do learn about that, and then shortly after that, Trayvon Martin is, is killed, and then Michael Brown is killed. And then the immediate response from Black reform people is what we've for a long time always felt that, wait a minute, it's an example of racism, but then our white brothers are reacting how they've always reacted, not necessarily in racism, but with the idea that, well, let's wait for the facts. Those two, those two things will clash because it wasn't addressed, I think, um, at the start, where I think for a long time, Christians have not really focused on teaching worldview, teaching what is the, what does the Bible say about politics? What does the Bible say about praying for your president, apparently? Because praying for your president now is controversial. So we've not really addressed these things. So when, um, when the world, society, um, started talking about racial issues, I think the church as a whole wasn't prepared for it. Um, so, so, so that happened. And over time, I think it's led to a lot of anger and bitterness from um, a lot of white people and black people saying things that are, I think, contrary to scriptures and pushing this social justice ideology that is really dividing people all the more in the church. Yeah, I think it's, that's, that's so interesting to hear you state like uh, your beliefs on why it's happening. Cause I, I haven't really thought about it from that perspective before. Um, I, I don't know anything about these leaders, George Whitfield or what was the other guy's name? Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Um, How long have you been a Christian for, if you mind me asking? Yeah. How long have you been a Christian for? A little over a year. Uh, you'll get to know them. I'll send okay. you. Uh, <laughs> things, uh, <they're>, yeah. <laughs> I would love to start. Yeah. Whatever you want to send me. I'd love to read. I've, I've, my, my coming, coming back to God has been an interesting path because it, 
uh, well, not to get too far off subject, but anyway, I was going to a spiritual center first in Los Angeles, which was more mm. of like non-denominational. It's called Agape. Um, yeah. You may have heard of it. My, Michael Bernard Beckwith. And um, uh, Oprah does a lot of stuff with him. That's where people have usually heard oh, of him. Oh, but- <laughs> <laughs> That's all you have to say. It's, more, uh, it's a little more like new age. But the then, name was like, the name, I forget it was new age. I'm like, oh, that's pretty bad. When you mentioned <laughs> Oprah. Okay. Stay but no hey, that was the door that I needed though. I mean, I think um, <laughs> sometimes I think about that. I remember where I was at just a few years ago in, re- in, in relation to now and just sort of um, it's sometimes it's like you can't, for some people are so stubborn. It, it, you can't just throw like ice water on me. I could, I would never have thought I would be going to an evangelical church three years ago. Right. But so like, I had to like tiptoe in, but well, well, praise God for, praise God for that. Well, thank you. But so, um, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty new to it. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is it's not just the social justice. It's not just, um, the, the racial part of it. It's also the feminism part, um, is moving in. I've seen, little dust-ups online, even being so new to it, I've started to see uh, a, a lot of stuff about this woman, Beth Moore. Um, yeah. You're laughing. You must know more. I don't know a lot about her yet. I just know there's a big dust-up about her saying that women yeah. should be creatures. Um, yeah. and, then, and then the trans stuff as well, like the gender ideology part of it is also yeah. moving into the churches. And so it's, um, it's interesting to me that you, met, you specifically said within the past five years, it's become more divided because I think that mirrors what's happening in the culture at large. So it's like, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah, just that it seems that um, Carter has said this before. Uh, Carter is an atheist who has great respect for Christianity. Um, he has said I that was a fundamentalist Christian and I've read the Bible a lot of times, so I'm not totally disconnected from the world. Okay. Right. Okay. And so he has said, it seems like culture is leading the church instead of the other way around. It's, it's a damning statement, but yes, that's exactly true. And it's sad to me uh, that if someone outside the church sees this, but many within the church do not see it. It's really sad uh, what's happening. Um, very quickly, if you don't mind me saying. Um, so my name is Samuel, but I'm not a prophet, right? There's a prophet in the Bible, but I'm not a prophet. Right. I said maybe two years ago um, that I saw it happen. I mean, look, Black Lives Matter, for example, is a... I mean, they're a feminist trans group, right? But they're, you know, obviously also pushing so-called anti-racist policies too. Um, And it was very obvious to me, what was going to happen is the more, because if you start to adopt the world's or, yeah, the world's view on, on racial issues and ethnicity, things like that, naturally, you're going to end up falling into the trap where you would then start to buy into feminism. And then before you know it, you're starting to share concerning views about transgenderism as well. And Academy One is part of a uh, group called the Truth's Table. And they've shared some pretty concerning things about feminism and transgenderism. Um, I won't go as far as saying they endorse that, but to be honest with you, they've said on a couple of occasions some very concerning things that would lead one to, to, to believe that perhaps they're starting to warm up to that idea. Uh, feminism, I'll, well, I'll say there's a good, it's very likely they're already um, in agreement with a big portion of feminism. But transgenderism already, I've been very surprised by already how quickly it's starting to already creep into a lot of the uh, anti-racist black circles within the church. 
Yeah. I um oh go ahead, Carter. Sorry, I just I kind of want to talk about a couple terms that you've used because I read I read some of your articles um in preparation for this. And there's a couple terms you used. One of them you use a lot is black liberation theology. And this was, I guess, James Cone was the founder. Did he die recently? Yeah, um, he died, uh, I think, sometime in April last year. Yeah. And um, in describing black liberation theology, it sounds like you you argue that it has roots in something called social gospel. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you can maybe describe those terms so people understand what you're talking about. And then I actually have some questions about some things you wrote about the origins of some of this. So um, maybe you can just clarify terms because as people read your work, yeah. I think it's important to understand what those terms mean. Okay. Yeah. So the social gospel essentially teaches that um, at its best, it says that Christ died to save sinners but he also died to um, eradicate poverty and to uh, bring about, you know, a, almost like a utopia in the world or something. Um, he died for Marx. <laughs> Is that <laughs> basically? So, so you know what? So most social gospel uh, proponents are very Marxist and socialist. Just naturally, that's um, um, I, I always can't say his name properly, but one of the, the leading figures of the social gospel is Walter Rauschenbach or something like that. And um, he was an open socialist, but his views have actually, has actually influenced people like uh, James Cone, who ended up teaching uh, black liberation theology. So black liberation theology is, is, is a very specific type of social gospel where it teaches that the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of the cross, the whole point of Christ is really to um, to liberate black people and all oppressed groups, but particularly black people being oppressed from and from from white devils, you know, which sorry would be would be you guys, <laughs> you know, and you know, and, and sorry, I've been called worse. It's fine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, um, but but that's the whole point of the really of of the uh, black liberation theology where it's all on it's, it's all about christ died for oppressed people um, in fact um he had, he had a book called god of the oppressed where it's strictly about how the cross was really not necessarily to justify sinners um because the gospel really teaches that god became a man um he was uh, in in christ christ is born to a virgin uh, in a virgin birth he lives a perfect life he dies on the cross um, and he, he resurrects for our justification and that anyone who believes and repents in him and turns away from their sin to follow Christ will be saved. That's the gospel. But black religion theology completely rejects that. It teaches that um, if you're a black, you're essentially already saved. Um, and, and that the, Christ was the first lynchee, that, that's his actual word, and Christ was lynched on the cross as a black person and, a, and, a, and, a, and that um and that god is black and the gospel is really for black people and it's a completely heretical unchristian um theology but one of the most leading figures in the social justice movement within the church uh his name is um uh, jamara tisby um he actually embraces james cone's theology without any qualifications whatsoever um 
So this is creeping into the church. Um, so that's, you know, um, that's uh, black division theology and the social gospel. I think that's, I think that's helpful. Can I just as a, you know, although I was Christian for a while, I didn't study the history of Christianity and something often, I think some of these social justice concepts are packaged with something that sounds kind of plausible to make them more palatable. And one thing that you write about, which I didn't really know, and, and frankly, I still don't quite understand. It seems like, it seems like there was a a rift in Christianity around slavery where people were saying, well, the gospel, the, the, the Bible allows slavery because it describes that slavery exists, um, yeah. which I don't think is the same as allowing, but whatever. It describes that slavery exists. And because it doesn't explicitly condemn slavery, therefore it is flawed and we can't uh, we can't interpret. We we have to interpret the Bible through a different lens. We can't just yeah. uh, read it directly. And I, to an outsider, and I think even to a lot of Christians, that sounds like a plausible people nod, and they're like, "Yeah, there is slavery in the Bible, and it didn't explicitly say that it was bad." And and then they take that, and they, that's where they that's the seed. I think the genesis of a lot of this, and yes. then they move forward. Can you describe kind of what's the arguments against that? Why is that not a good way to look at this? And you know, what would you have said back then if that if you were part of that conversation? The arguments against what in particular? The idea that like, well, because the Bible doesn't, uh, it doesn't explicitly condemn slavery, therefore we have to interpret it through this other lens and we can't just, you know, read the Bible and and yeah. uh, take it at face value, I guess. Yeah, um, it's, it's fascinating because as you mentioned, there was two sides to the debate um, in that, so, as, as many know, William Wilberforce was a Christian and what motivated him to um, become an abolitionist was the Bible, was his Christian um, um, faith. And the Bible is very clear that we should establish justice for all. Um, and in fact, just gonna go back and come back to this later on. The reason why, because I, I don't want us to be mistaken whatsoever. I hate, social justice because it's not justice. I hate that because it's actually injustice where it, it removes ind individual liberty and human rights to establish, to, to establish a really a socialist agenda. Um, that's not human rights. Uh, that's not justice and that's why I hate it. But the Bible is very clear that we should establish justice. Um, that's why throughout history, Christ Christians have been um, at the forefront of fighting every single evil in the world. Um, so now getting back to Wilberforce and the abolitionist movement, I think it was very clear. Uh, one of the things that really pushed the Christian abolitionist, sorry, yeah, yeah, the Christian abolitionist, those who did not reject the inspiration and intimacy of scripture was that the Bible is very clear that we should care for our neighbor, that we should do unto them as we want to be done to us, that we should make sure that we are establishing justice in the courts, that we are, we are loving um, and helping the poor, the vulnerable in society. So I think when you, even though the Bible does not really, really reject slavery as a sinful um, practice, at least, at least in a very explicit form, if you take 
what the Bible is saying to its natural conclusion, you are going to end up saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we loving our neighbor when we say, because you're a black person, you need to be my slave? Because in the Bible, it doesn't condone racial slavery whatsoever. Um, and in fact, it would teach against it because it says, uh, it's controversial, but it says slaves love, sorry, it says uh, masters love your slave. Well, if you love your slave, eventually you have to wrestle with, okay, why is this person my slave? Am I loving him if he's my slave or not? Um, and so to the many people in that time who said, because of the Bible's teachings on slavery, it cannot be right. That means the Bible is all wrong. I would say, um, how do I make sure I articulate it well? I would say as many of the abolitionists did in their time. And not no, be honest, I think it's very difficult because sadly, it, it's so, so, so that article you mentioned, it was so hard for me to actually read and write that because as I'm reading this, I am disappointed by the many Christians who had good theology, who believe that um, slavery should exist in America. And yet the people that I agreed with on slavery, they were rejecting the Bible. But if we are, as I was saying, if we care, if we care about our, our, our neighbors and we care about loving them, we care about establishing justice for them, then we cannot then naturally and say, it's okay for us to uh, buy slaves from Africans who have kidnapped other Africans to sell them as slaves. And these slaves are not there because of, um, because, because in, the, in the biblical times, many times, uh, many people would want to be slaves so that they could have a better life. Um, that was true in the, uh, in the New Testament and the Greco-Roman world uh, especially. But that's not what was happening in America where you were strictly a slave for the most part because of your skin color. And um, that was wrong. So, so I'm not sure if I've been very articulate my mind is going all, all the place here, but that's what I would say to uh, those people. No, that, that makes sense. And you, and you have pointed out something that I think is not emphasized enough, which is that social justice as a term is a collectivist term and mm -hmm. it individualism by its very nature, like instead of judging you as a human being, I judge you as part of a collective, right? Yeah. I don't see you as Samuel say, if I'm a social justice warrior, I see you as a black man who yeah. from Ghana or whatever it is, right? Yeah. You're a member of a group and, and I seek justice for, for one group over another group or everything's about group dynamics. And I don't see, I don't see, this is from an atheist. I don't see collectivism in the Bible. I see a lot of focus on yourself, a lot of individualism, a lot of individual relationships with God and Christ and, you know, removing the log from your own eye first, all that kind of stuff. I don't see a lot of band together with other people of the same skin color and fight battles over, you know, see, who's a prep whom. It's funny because the only collective, uh, uh, collectivist, um, idea in the Bible really is on the church, right? But there's one body in Christ. That's what the gospel teaches that we are one body. Yeah. Uh, there's no Gentile, there's no Greek, there's no, there's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's no master, just one body in Christ through the gospel. Yet the social justice 
ideology teaches that, okay, let's actually, because the gospel teaches that, though there is no Gentile or no uh, Greek, in heaven, God is, we're going to see all tribes, all ethnicities, just worshiping God together. But in the other way around, the social justice ideology teaches that actually, let's divide the church into Gentile, Jew, into black, white, into um, into male, female, into black man versus white man, into black woman versus black man, and this intersectional um, thinking that actually ends up dividing what Christ has already united in, um, in, uh, through the cross. I thought that was the most beautiful part of that, of your, the second piece we talked about that you wrote, whiteness, blackness, and Christless. Um, Cause you kind of, you, you got into that at the end and you said, um, <clears throat> you said, I'm convinced that's because we're abandoning biblical theology for worldly philosophies and political agendas that cannot unify God's people the way the gospel does. And that's the point, isn't it? Racial reconciliation has already happened on the cross. Jesus Christ has reconciled Jews to Gentiles, black people to white people, all people together for God. We simply need to believe it and live like it. Therefore, we need to put on Christ and put off every argument, every lofty opinion, every thought that isn't captive to Christ. Otherwise, we'll idolize whiteness and blackness and become Christless. And that just, uh, that to me, that's exactly what I see as dangerous about this because um, and I've talked about this a little before on our show, it, if you let SJW ideal, if you let social justice ideology infiltrate the church, it itself is a meta narrative. It is a belief system through which the entire world is filtered. And so if that's, if that infiltrates your church, it's going to necessarily become the filter through which everything is viewed, including the word of God. The gospel is now filtered through this ideology instead mm -hmm. of instead of the gospel being the thing through which everything is filtered and so um it's like that idea of like you can you can only serve one master and so it's wh what is it that you're yeah. using what is your church using to interpret the world is it the bible or is it this this man-made ideology that tells you no go back and look at the bible through this lens through this cultural yeah, yeah. exactly so um I've on social media, um, I try very, very hard to stay away from certain things. And one of the things I've largely stayed away from is the uh, Beth Moore uh, issue. Um, but I feel oh, I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. Well, I'm bringing it up now, right? So I'm saying that because I think you said something that compels me to uh, just mention this. So it's, it's fascinating that uh, when it comes to just how the church is now thinking about gender um, and um, you know, so I'm a complementarian. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but uh, basically I believe that um, men and women are equal before God with separate roles, uh, strictly yeah. with this. Um, and that's why we do not believe that um, that it's the role of the of a woman to teach um, uh, men, uh, as because the Apostle Paul uh, teaches, uh, the Bible teaches that women should not have authority or teach men um, in the church. And that's really the debate that's happening uh, with Beth Moore. So normally, usually I stay away from that because 
I, I don't be that guy who's always just talking about every every single thing. Um, I have my lane and I stay in my lane. That's mostly, you know, that's that's, that's it. But it's that's a very SJW phrase, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, hey, I'm being influenced myself. What can I say? Uh, no, um, but um, I think the concern here is what I'm hearing a lot. The arguments against the complementarian view isn't okay, that's how you understand the Bible. Well, let me, let me then teach you, or let me explain to you how I understand the Bible. That's not the debate right now. The debate is on, well, you are a misogynist. That's immediately the response. And already you see where we're going with, with this, where you cannot challenge your brother or your sister on their view with your understanding of theology or scripture. But it's, you don't agree with me, because we're misogynist. And just like that, we are getting dangerously close to abandoning uh, what the Bible teaches on, on these issues. And, and I said, uh, adopting worldly philosophies. Yeah. As an outsider, I can have a, ask a question here. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't really care who teaches in the church because I'm not in the church. Uh, so that's fine. Um, I, I wouldn't agree with, with that in general, but you don't have to adopt my beliefs either. I guess my point is, uh, why is it, why is it the Christians who are making arguments like you are, why are you guys under attack from the social justice warriors? When, if I want to look at a religion and find a misogynistic religion, who's oppressing women, Christianity would not be number one on the, on the list of world religions yeah. to, to get angry about. Uh, yeah. there's another one I can think of. <laughs> that I, I would argue is pretty obviously uh, exponentially more oppressive. Yeah. So yeah. why wouldn't they be fighting that battle first? And then yeah. after they've fixed Islam, then yeah. then turn to like, okay, now we have a problem with Christianity. Why are you guys at the top of the list for social justice warriors? My immediate simple answer to that is a house divided against itself will not stand, which is Islam. And this will this will be harsh to some people, but Islam and social justice ideology is coming from the same source. That's why it's coming from the devil. That's that's my belief. The devil is not going to fight Islam because the devil is the god of Islam, um, and the devil is the god of the social justice ideology, um, and that's why um, there is a lack of consistency when it comes to a lot of social justice warriors on this issue. And Christianity is the gospel. Christianity is the biggest threat to sin and false ideology in this world. And that's why Christianity, and I don't understand people sometimes, they don't quite realize where they're headed towards. Today, it's the white man. Tomorrow, it's the Christian man that they're coming after. And they already are, but they don't quite understand that just yet. This movement is not going to be satisfied with simply um, pushing anti-racist ideology. It's going, it's really about pushing anti-Christian ideology. And I'm not saying that people within the church who subscribe to some of these beliefs are intentionally trying to do that. No. Um, I just think that there are many who are, um, you know, some people when they say 
social justice is just simply mean helping people. And that's fine. Um, but if somebody truly understands the source of the social justice ideology and they're pushing it in its, in its worst forms, I believe that they're being uh, used by the devil. Um, and um, it, as I said, it's a threat to human rights because, so I'm a pro-life advocate and it's, so I, you know, so I, I, I'm trying to establish human rights for, for preborn babies. I am not establishing social justice. I'm actually fighting against uh, that because the feminists, the plant parenthoods of this world, they're not saying, calling themselves human rights activists. They'll call themselves social justice advocates. And yet Christians want to borrow terms that is obviously against um, our ideology. And, um, you know, so again, some, I think, I don't mean it harshly, some I think are ignorant about the, how the term is used today. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, anyway, so yeah, going back to your original uh, question, the reason why Islam isn't the target is because it's the same devil that I think is pushing, um, you know, social justice ideology. I have a, I have, it, it, I don't disagree with you at all, by the way. And I have something I wanted to say about that for people who are not Christian. We've actually talked about this on the show before and, and tried to explain why is it that SJW ideology and is Islamism, political Islam at least, or if, if not all of Islam, why are they uh, bedfellows? It's a curious thing because, because Islam is homophobic and uh, has a lot of problems with women and there's a lot of reform that's needed. So why is it though that, that SJW ideology has no, it's a very um, hands off. You're not allowed to criticize even radical Islam. You're not allowed to criticize it. No. Um, and so even for people who are not Christians, it's, I think the answer, uh, you don't have to believe it's the devil. It's, it's, they share, I would say from a secular point of view, what they share is that they're both uh, the end goal, regardless of what SJW ideology says is the end goal, the actual end goal where it's going to end up is destruction of Western civilization and destruction of truth. Yeah. And I'm it's glad not, you said that, by the way, Carrie. That's I would like that is the end goal. It's the destruction of Western civilization, and yeah. it, and for a lot of people, that's tied up with the destruction of Christianity. Yeah. So it, it, it's fascinating to me because my mom is always asking me. Um, so I'm an immigrant, um, as she is, as I explained earlier. She's always asking me, "Why is it that you know we immigrants?" And she's she's referring to the Ghanaians that we know. Why are they so unappreciative of Canada and the West. Because I I was 10 years old when I left Ghana. I remember very vividly what it was like. I remember how privileged I am to live in this country. And I every so often, I, I thank God. Because um, this house that, I, that I, I live in, I wouldn't have anything close to that if I was in another country. And it's the West. Um, and the ideals, the Christian principles that are still, um, for the most part, um, still in play uh, in the West that I think, uh, that's why I think the West is the ideal across the whole world. So Africa, people don't know this very, very well, but Africa for a long time um, was very communist, very socialist. Uh, and it still is in many, many ways too, um, because of the prominence of a lot of the um, black activists like uh, like MLK and uh, Malcolm X, um, Africa really, really 
uh, borrowed uh, communist and socialist ideology. Um, and people don't know that African, the Pan-African ideology is very communist, but it's only recently that Africa is starting to move away from its socialist and communist ideals to adopt more capitalistic and Western principles. So it's funny to me that in Africa, people are saying, hey, let's become more like the West. But the Africans who have left Africa, who are here, are saying, hey, let's get the West to become almost more like Africa in a sense in the past, where let's become more communist or more socialist. And it's really bizarre to me. And my mom is always, her and I was talking about it. It's, it's, it's a privilege um, to live, you know, to live um, in, in the West. Uh, and it's not perfect because um, sadly, abortion is rampant in the West. Um, but I think that's because we've actually, um, we're actually going against Western principles, which would actually mean that we should believe in, 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 the, um, in, in the right to life for all, including pre-born babies. But anyway, um, yeah, so yeah, it's, the whole, it's, it's definitely about this destroying Western civilization and uh, it's, it's, it's sad. Yeah, yeah I think, um, I don't know. I think, <laughs> I, I'm just really appreciative that you did this show with us. I'm not. I'm not ending, and I just want to tell you thank you because I'm. I, this is this is the talk I've been wanting to have. Trying to get rid of me, for sure. No, not yet. <laughs> not until you have to go. I'm just really. This is the conversation I've been wanting to have for a while because, I think, um, a lot of people in the church are. They don't know what's coming, or they don't know what's in the midst already. And it, because it sounds good, who who would? It's like they sell it as social justice. They sell it as as being who who's not against racism. Who's not against sexism you know, who, who wouldn't be for social justice. And so, um, you know, I, I believed it for 20 years Now I don't think I'm a particularly stupid person. <laughs> so I think it's easy to get, um, it's yeah. easier than you think to get people, yeah. um, on board with it. And then, and it's a slow process. And I think, um, Carter mentioned something, what you said earlier about, uh, why is it, why are they going after the church? Why are they going after Christianity and not Islam? And um, the other thing that made me think of is, well, Christianity itself, Christians are a good mark. If you can convert a church, mm. these are people who are already going weekly, sometimes several times a week to um, to meet together as a group and to decide they're going to you know, work on things together. It's a natural springboard for activism in some ways. And, yeah. and so if you can, it, it's a... I don't know. There's something about Christians that makes them more, um, maybe more susceptible than most people because they're already, these are already people who are trying to do good. Yes. Yeah. If they're sincere. Absolutely. Yeah. Besmanoff idea, right? Where when you're infiltrating, you take over institutions and the church is a very powerful institution. It's, it's every town has churches like, you drive through cities and there's sometimes there's churches on every street corner. So it's a, it's a ubiquitous, powerful institution. And if you can infiltrate that institution rather than fighting it from the outside, you've got a built-in army of allies. Mm. It mm. makes a lot of strategic sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think heading back to slavery, I think, um, so white guilt is strong enough. Christian guilt is even stronger, right? Where, a large, a large, large portion of Christians supported slavery. A large Christians, a large number of Christians supported segregation. Um, 
And today, in light of that, many people feel guilty about that. And they, they say, wait a minute, just like the past, just like the abolitionist and civil rights movement, a lot of black people are saying that the church is racist, society is racist, and we don't wanna be like our forefathers who didn't address the issue. We want to change the narrative uh, uh, that many many people have about, Christi uh, about Christians. We wanna be different. And obviously it's good to be different. <laughs> it's not good to be a racist, but you wanna make sure that you're actually right and being biblical on the issue and that you actually have the facts on your side. Otherwise, you're actually doing what your forefathers did in the past by actually pursuing not biblical theology, but by pursuing worldly philosophies, right? Because the Christians, not all of them, but many, many of the Christians who held racist views in the past, they weren't doing so because of the Bible. They were doing so because they were agreeing with the culture. So today, yes. if you're actually agreeing with the culture on racism, you're actually being more like them then you are being more like Christ. And that's a very scary thing. Now, on top of that, um, I think, the, the, so it's funny. At the same time, while we're having this talk about social justice, there's also another talk being happening alongside it too, which is multi-ethnic churches, right? Which is that every church is supposed to be multi-ethnic. Now, I don't see that being said anywhere in the Bible. Um, now look, I, I go to I go to a multi-ethnic church. I love it. Um, I was in a all-black church for, for most of my life, and I've never been more home than being at a multi-ethnic church. Also, in between this, I also went to a Dutch Reformed church. Now I don't know if you know what the Dutch Reformed church is, but it's Dutch. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it is Dutch. All right. I was a very I was the first black person to walk into the church that I was in, and it was awkward, all right? Now, they loved me. I loved them. Uh, but it was very awkward. <laughs> Is it because you weren't wearing wooden shoes? <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was the only issue. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. And so, look, I, I love being a multi-ethnic church. And I think which every single pastor should absolutely make sure they are reaching out to every single person in their, in their local communities. Absolutely. But the Bible doesn't teach us to try to accomplish or try to uh, achieve a multi-ethnic church. It's a very dangerous thing because once you say that, then you become seeker sensitive where you are seeking a group that you think you need to have in your church. So in the past, well, it's still happening today, but especially 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was a big debate amongst Christians about if we should be trying to attract certain people in the church. And oftentimes it was like younger people, it was very cool to attract, and it still is, I suppose, but uh, it was very cool to attract the cool young guys, you know, who didn't want to come to church. So it meant, um, you know, having UFC nights, you know, in a church and things like that, or uh, just attracting as many people as you could, you know, just having a big mega church. Like if you were doing these two things, that's what made you a, a good local pastor. Today, because of what the culture is teaching today, I think we're now saying, well, it's not so much about trying to make sure that you have as many people within your church or as many young people in your church. It's if you have as many ethnically diverse people in your church, which is the same same thinking, just a different approach. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why I think many Christians are embracing 
this ideology because they think that if we will embrace this ideology, it might then improve our churches. Then it's going to make us, you know, make our so-called white churches become more multi-ethnic. But look, the church as a whole, Christ's bride, you know, the, the church of Christ died for, is already multi-ethnic, right? That's God's job. God is the one. We go preach the gospel wherever we can, absolutely. But God will make his church, not necessarily every local church, multi-ethnic. And in heaven, as I said earlier, we're going to worship with all tribes and all ethnicities in one, one language, worshiping our Lord. But that seeker-sensitive uh, movement, I think, has has reformed into a, um, a different kind of movement within the church today. The underlying premise seems to be that God also has a social justice hierarchy of souls, and uh, he's he's preferring certain ones over ever. That seems to be the assumption, hmm. right? Like, oh, hmm. well, hmm. uh, God, God wants us to have more of these type of people and less of those type of people. Um, hmm. Hmm. But I don't, I, I think it's also, uh, it's funny, it's on an individual level, not just on a a church level and it's not just in the churches it's everywhere we see this this whole thing it um uh it companies uh, and not just with race with with sex and gender too like um you know we need to have 50 percent female employees and stuff like that and this idea of like recruiting people based on and 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 befriending people based on race and sex and stuff it's um it's not just on an organizational level it's also on a personal level and carter and i were talking the other day about some of the people who like the white white women who really bought into this whiteness ideology i don't know if you've seen this but we've been talking about it for a couple of days now there's a lot of um white unlearning your your white your toxic whiteness workshops or healing from your toxic whiteness and you pay a lot of money so it's like white women who have a lot of guilt and disposable income and they go and they they are paying for the same more of the same ideology they've already bought into, which is why they're there. And that's supposed to heal it. <laughs> I know. Well, if you really want to become more anti-racist, they can just send that money to me. I'd be very happy to take. They don't have to win that money. I could just you send it, to, send it to a black man. I would do very well with that money. They don't have to succumb to that. <laughs> you should come up with a certificate. Like we'll come with a little thing you could send. Involve <laughs> the guilt for like a time period. This month you're you're absolved. Your whiteness is absolved. absolved. But yeah. so, but so in the, in one of those groups that I'm in where there's a lot of women like that um, on an individual level, I was telling Carter, this ideology has messed with people's heads so much that they now see people, they're being told they have to see people by their race and their sex first. And yeah. so they are, um, they are looking at women, like there are white women in the movement who are looking and, and asking questions of other people in the group. Like, I just don't know why I'm not able to make close friends with women of color and what, sh you know, and it's like, because like with the church, you're making that your goal. That's so weird that you're making. Yeah. So it's just, it's like disingenuous when you meet a woman of color yeah. for your brain has now been rewired to where you're like, yeah. I must make friends with you. Yeah. You know, like that, and and that you're not. It's not like an organic thing, and that's what I hear you saying about the church. Is like, you want yes, we sh you should get rid of any barriers that would prevent um, different groups of people from feeling welcome in the church. Yeah. I agree with that absolutely. Yeah. But, th but to say we need to target this percentage of of this of of men or women or black or white people, it just it just seems like disingenuous because then you're tailoring things to such a way that it, it just yeah. doesn't come off. Yeah. 
And I, I, uh, I appreciate, um, you know, this conversation very much too, but I think those were very important that just in case, so no, nobody gets the wrong idea that, look, the church is the greatest thing in the world. Um, the church is the reason why the world still exists um, um, because Christ is building his church and then he will, um, you know, when the last person is, uh, is saved, then he will return. But it's important, you know, that I think we, you know, that I say too that, while the church is um, full of sinners, me being uh, one of the very highest uh, worst sinners in the church, um, that it has its faults, um, you know, because we're sinners, not because the church itself is 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 is, uh, is at fault necessarily, because it's the bread of Christ. Um, Christ is is um, is it's 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 bridegroom. Um, so I just don't want anyone to get the perception, not saying that any, any of us here are doing so, the, the perception that the church is a problem necessarily in the world today. Uh, because while I think, you know, we always need, uh, as, you know, as a Christian, we always need to make sure that we are um, examining ourselves to make sure that we, we, are, we have the right theology. Um, you know, the world today is still right on, sorry, the Christians today are still, um, right on the gospel, um, obviously. And I think I'm just concerned that we might be abandoning a very important aspect of the gospel to embrace what the world is teaching on this issue. So to me, this is actually really more about the church, hoping the church, um, that's not, sorry. I, I'm just making sure that we're not allowing worldly philosophies to, you know, to infiltrate the church, you know? Um, so anyways, that's it. Yeah, I mean, that would be, that would be the way I would put, I mean, I, one of the things that I liked about coming, um, discovering this church that I'm at now and coming back to God was that I, it totally challenged all the stereotypes I had developed about, about Christians. And so, um, one of the, this, this may sound silly to you because you, it sounds like you've been a Christian for quite a, a bit longer than I have, but, um, I, I was shocked to discover, I was like, Oh, cause I, I was like, I'm broken. You know, I don't belong at a church. <laughs> and then I was like, the first service, I'm like, oh, these are all broken people and they admit it. And then they're here trying to uh, become less broken by trying to walk with God. And that's like, it's just not the stereotype that I knew. It's very so, different. Yeah. I've been a Christian for 13 years now. And I remember um, days after I became a Christian, I was convinced there's absolutely no way I would be a Christian a year from then. Because... I was, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, 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 I love sin too much, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I was rightly um, aware of uh, my sinful nature, but I didn't quite understand yet. And still this day, I'm still learning more of just how gracious Christ is and how Christ loves me more than I love my sin. Um, and every single person uh, who's a Christian um, knows that they're broken, you know, they're, that, they're, that they're sinful. Um, but that's why we're Christians, right? That Christ died for sinners and that uh, we await the day when he will return and that all these little things will be nothing because we'll behold our Savior and we'll see that, um, you know, we'll see him in all his glory and we'll finally be uh you know, perfect and without sin, without brokenness, uh, no more pain, no more tears. 
you know. And I'll be praying that uh, your partner uh, partner will also uh, come to see <laughs> in Christ as well, so that uh, <laughs> I'm working on it. The They've already got I've got people in the chat praying for me as well. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's, that's great. Okay. Samuel Carter thinks that this podcast is a long game to red pill me to become an anarchist, right? Or no, but I think it's a long yeah, game. To, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But see, I'm red pilling. I'm. I don't know what the pill is, but I'm giving you a pill. You're giving me a pill, but you just got to figure out the color. <laughs> <laughs> I can. I can. I um. I actually have a question. Uh, that. <clears throat> I hadn't thought about this, but we, we had a conversation with James Lindsay the other day about <clears throat> other stuff. And I think he's an atheist. I'm not actually sure. But he had studied social justice convergence in Christianity a little bit. And his view, and I just want to bounce this off of you and get your idea about it. He thinks that it's possible that Christianity may be particularly vulnerable to social justice ideology, partially because of the idea of original sin. And the analogy he used was that mm. for mm. whiteness, whiteness is like an original sin. You can't wash it off. It's part of you. Um, and, and because Christians already accept this idea of an original sin, it's very easy to then transfer that to this idea of whiteness being part of your original sin or some, you know, genetic inheritance being part of your original sin. Can you, yeah. do you have any thoughts about that? I, I don't know really how to react that's, to it. That's, I think uh, there's some truth to that uh, because one of the most, um, I won't mention his name, um, but I, I admire this man a lot, but he made a comment once where I just thought, like, what in the world is this? Where he was basically saying, because of our view of original sin, but total depravity, not sure if you know what that is. Um, but no, total, what is that? It's basically um, a, um, a view that that Christians, that our our sinful nature. So, so we are we are depraved, or we're we're naturally sinful. Right? So it's very similar to original sin, except it's not that we are as bad as we can be, but that if not for God's grace, would be even worse than we are now. If that make, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I, I get it. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. So so. So that so then this so then this leader teaches that um, because of original sin because of total depravity, every, it, it's it's evidence that uh, it's evidence of systemic racism because you're saying if we truly believe in total depravity if we believe that we're all truly sinful or we believe in original sin then how can we reject that every system then is racist, which sounds right to many many people except in my view, it's illogical because he wouldn't say that every system is homophobic. He wouldn't say that every system is, um, every system endorses rape. He wouldn't say that. Although all these things are, you know, rape and, and um, you know, hating people is, is sin. But he wouldn't say that that means that every system is actually endorsing this. So, why would every system be endorsing it only for one particular race of people and not for others also? That doesn't make sense. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I reject that, but there are many people who believe this. It's very, very common. I hear it very, very, uh, very often. At the same time though, the Bible clearly teaches against, I think the very core of social justice 
um, ideology, which is the Bible is very clear that we should not be bitter, right? First Corinthians 13, 7 teaches that love bears all things, love hopes all things, love believes all things, love endures all these, all things. Essentially, I'm to assume the best of my neighbor. I'm to love my neighbor as myself. I was giving this example of, and to me, it really just opened my mind much more. I was walking in a tunnel once. It was a very dark tunnel. I was all alone. Um, the tunnels maybe uh, maybe 20, no, maybe maybe about 15, 20 meters long. And I'm walking in and it's, just, it's dark. It's just me. And then all of a sudden I see a white woman coming from the other side and we're about to pass each other. As soon as she sees me, she grabs her her, her bag and shoves, basically shoves herself into the other side of the wall. And I'm thinking, what, what, what? Like, huh, what's going on here? Because the tunnel's very dirty. So I'm thinking, would you rather be against the wall than be near me? Or what, are you, what are you afraid of me? It's just, I'm thinking, are you, is it because I'm black? Is she racist? I'm thinking all these things as I'm walking in the tunnel. But then towards the end, I think to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is it because I am black or is it because I'm actually a man, a much larger man than she is? And I actually told my little sister that whenever she's in that tunnel, she should make sure, sorry, I think I told her that she shouldn't be in that tunnel at night because it's a very, it's a place that could, you know, end up harming uh, women. And I realized how racist I was towards her because if she was a black woman, I would have never, ever, ever considered that she was racist against me. But because she was white, I assumed the worst of her, thinking she was assuming the worst of me. The Bible teaches against these things. The Bible teaches that I am to assume the best of every single person unless they give me clear reason to believe that they are sinful against me. The Bible also teaches that whoever condemns um, the righteous and whoever um, uh, acquits the guilty are both an abomination before the Lord. That goes completely against um, that ideology where it doesn't really care about who's innocent or who's not. It all cares about, well, are you part of this group or not? So it doesn't matter if you're a white person or anything. If you are a white person and you do something that makes a black person uncomfortable, no matter what your intentions were, because you're white, that makes you a racist. Whether whether you're guilty or not, it doesn't matter. Um, the Bible also, um, also, um, this is my turn apart here. Um, also teaches, as, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, that we should be um, uh, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. If we understand what that means, we're not going to buy into this ideology whatsoever. So I think that there are definitely some people who have misinterpreted certain certain text to mean what it doesn't um, actually mean, and then they are forgetting all the other principles at the core of what the gospel teaches and what the implications of the gospel are that uh, lead, lead us to embrace this ideology. You hit on I something I think super important about, I'll, I'll, I'll attribute it to Christian culture. Um, not, not that all Christians do this, but um, I hadn't realized how, I, you, you said it in a really powerful and clear way just now, the assuming the best in people and we are now in this culture where if I can take 
like people do do things for lots of reasons. There could have been, she could have been attacked by a guy who looked just like you two weeks before. You have no idea why she was doing that, right? Mm -hmm. um, she could be racist, but it might've been a whole host of other things, right? Yeah. And we live in a society, we used to live in a society where the assumption would be giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? Yes. I assume you're not racist, you're reacting for some reason, I'm gonna go about my way and, mm -hmm. and whatever. Um, but now we're in this culture where if there's any possible way to misconstrue something as racist, yes. that's what you'll do. Yes. <laughs> and that is just a recipe for utter chaos and destruction. Yeah. So this day, sorry, go ahead. Oh, and not just racist, just assuming we've gotten to where we assume the worst about people and, and just in general. And, and we always take, I think we take the worst possible context or the worst possible interpretation of what they're trying to say in arguments where instead of talking and engaging in good faith, a lot of times we engage in bad faith. We're not mm -hmm. really there to yeah. um, assume that they are, we don't assume that they're engaging in good faith. And so we don't do it either, but I've never heard like a biblical basis for why you should engage in good faith and assume the best of each other. Mm -hmm. I, I really like that. So thank you. To, to this day, that is that article I referenced is the most controversial article I've read in terms of the kind of backlash I received from people. People were angry. And that told me it's because, I hope it's because I was able to hit at the core of this issue, which is really about assuming the worst of other people, assuming the worst of, of white people, assuming the worst of men, assuming the worst of Christians, assuming the worst of people, instead of thinking, hmm, maybe I need to actually consider my own heart instead of trying to discern somebody else's heart. And that is what truly, you know, uh, I think really breaks my heart because I think we're doing something extremely dangerous here where instead the Christians are supposed to be not necessarily self-deprecating, but we're supposed to be um, humble and we're supposed to consider ourselves as less sig significant than the other. That's what the Bible teaches. Instead, we are making ourselves much more important and focusing on being more triggered. And so, so it's funny. Some people would say that that social just ideology is compassionate. So, so an example that I gave, for example, if I would say, well, that white person, that white girl was racist, they would say, well, hey, he's a black person. He's had a hard life. I need to be compassionate and listen to him. But what about compassion for that girl, right? As Carter mentioned, perhaps he's gone through, she's gone through something difficult, you know? And there's no compassion for her. What's compassion for white people? Look, it's fascinating to me because <laughs> some white, some of the people who call me, you know, people call me a white supremacist. They call me uh, an Uncle Tom and everything. <laughs> I know a white supremacist. Yes, that that always makes me laugh too. And it's it's sometimes it's Christians, white Christians, who end up saying this stuff to me. They say because well, you're trying to protect white people. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to protect white people, black people, anybody I can. I'm supposed to be compassionate to all. I want to believe the best about every single person, you know? And sadly, uh, we're losing this because we are borrowing from the culture instead of from scripture. You, um, uh, you just said something that's, I think, really beautiful. And part of why I, um, I don't know, I love... I love my God. And I love Christianity, but it's, it's this whole thing about um, focusing on your own, like you said, not self-deprecating, but focusing on yourself and on your own, your own heart. 
mm-hmm. instead of focusing on the outside. And so that's at direct odds with the social justice ideology, which is about focusing on the external instead of the internal. It's mm-hmm. all about blaming everything on people and outside of you, judging everyone and everything around you, judging the world, but not doing any internal reflection and not actually looking to see if you're being a hypocrite or not. Um, I, I think of it as a really hypocritical kind of belief system. But um, but so I, 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 wanted, I didn't know if we we're going to have time to talk about this, but just quickly, because we touched on it, um, I saw the, the controversy that happened with the president when he stopped at that church in Virginia. And um, my dog is about to start barking. Do you want to just tell people real quick what happened? Because then I have something I want to say about it. Let, um, he's gonna, okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, after the, after the uh, I'm not sure when it happened, I think it was a Friday or a Saturday, but there was a shooting in Virginia. I think that killed 12 people, uh, I believe. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And then that morning, um, Donald Trump um, visited um, a church in Virginia, um, a church led by a pastor named David Platt. And uh, Donald Trump showed up unannounced. And um, apparently, um, I remember, I'm not too familiar with what happened behind the scenes, but um, he, you know, he was on, he was called uh, on the stage and uh, David Platt, the pastor, prayed for him. Um, he didn't gush about Donald Trump. He didn't gush about, you know, MAGA. He didn't, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't mention that he loved the Republican strategy or policies or nothing like that. He simply prayed for his his president. Um, he was even um, not. I don't know if I would say intentionally or not, but he was even vague about certain things. He mentioned justice. He mentioned, you know, um, you know, everything that every single person across the aisle should want from the president. That he would be wise. Um, that he would um, trust in in Christ, and that. Um, he'd be, you know, a man of justice. But that apparently was the most controversial thing that he will probably ever do, um, you know, perhaps in his ministry, um, simply obeying what the Bible says to do in praying for your president. Now, to be fair, um, people aren't necessarily saying it's wrong to pray for the president. Um, they're simply saying that he shouldn't have done it in the manner which in which he did, um, because, Many people, um, you know, from mostly uh, people that I'm, I'm reading from, mostly black people, black Christians are saying that, um, it, it, you know, they, they were hurt by it. And these are apparently some people within his church, uh, because afterward, David Platt wrote, wrote um, an article explaining why he did what he did, because he explained that some people within his church were hurt by it. Um, and then some people outside the church, too, were were hurt saying that, you know, it's, it was something, it's something that would create trauma. It would trigger people to be upset because Trump is a racist and he's a sexist and all these things. And it, honestly, it was sad. So the fascinating thing is, look, I love David Platt. Um, he has written uh, two books that I really admire. I've given them to people that I, 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 I love to read as Which well. books? Uh, Radical uh, is the book. And uh, boy, I'm forgetting the other book. I'm forgetting the other book. I'm sorry. I, somebody recommended Radical to me. Uh, yeah. I don't agree with everything in the book, but it's it's generally a good book. Uh, very good book. So anyway, um, I so I admire him a lot, but he's sympathetic, ironically, to the social justice issue. <laughs> and I find it, it fascinating. Ask, ask a question. Yeah. If, 
I don't I don't think Trump is racist and sexist, but if he is, doesn't that mean he sh- he needs the prayer all the more? That's what you would think. But people are but again, people are abandoning biblical theology for worldly philosophies where because so so Trump is essentially the antichrist to the social justice movement. That's, that's what he is. And the antichrist doesn't deserve prayer. Antichrist deserves shame, condemnation, and that's it. That's really what it comes down to for many people. So um, you're right. He does it. Now, again, many would say, yeah, he should be prayed for. Right? They'll just say it just not in that manner on the stage because some of the people were clapping. Now, I, I, I simply assume they were clapping because they're honoring the president, which, look, so the Apostle Paul um, and Peter, they, they wrote um, the New Testament under, um, uh, under Nero. Nero was Caesar at that time. And they were saying honor and pray for him. Trump, I, I'm not a big Trump fan, um, but I agree that I don't think he's a sexist or racist either. Trump is not Nero, not even close. And yet people seem to have more animosity or more of a problem against what David Platt did with Donald Trump than what the Apostle Paul and Peter were saying to Nero, who was persecuting Christians. It's really bizarre to me. But that's where we are now. Um, so, yeah, it's become the most controversial thing, um, I suppose, amongst uh, many Christians uh, uh, this week. And it's quite sad. Um, you know, and there's been a lot of just horrible words being said, um, you know, uh, against them by even people, um, you know, who are who reject, um, you know, I, um, I thank you for that summary of what happened because I, I kind of, I caught just a little bit of it online. I started looking it up and I wasn't familiar with David Platt or anything, but, um, I also had the same reaction to his statement. Well, first of all, I thought the media was trying to spin it too hard. The media had headlines like the pastor apologizes for praying for the Trump. And I, and I didn't see an apology in there, but he did, he did say that, um, you know, some church members were hurt. And my thing is, is like Carter said, uh, every, it, why would you say that any person is undeserving of prayer? Because the whole point, especially like you said, if they're a bad guy, if they're doing bad things, you're, you're going to want to pray for them. If it's when they have as much power as someone does like that. Um, and, and the other thing I thought of was, um, this was actually, something I heard at my spiritual center at my new age church back when Michael Bernard Beckwith was talking about, this was right after Trump had been elected. And um, a lot of people at that congregation were very, were very anti-Trump, but also very sincere about their beliefs. And he did a whole sermon about um, how you should feel obligated to pray for the, you know, loving, loving people that you like is easy loving people that you don't like is hard. <laughs> and so he was like, you know, for me, I have, I, I feel obligated to pray for those that I don't like. And yeah. I put them at the center of my prayers because yeah. um, it's not so much, I mean, it, it is about, you know, praying for good things for them, but it's also about pray. It's going to change me. If I do that, I'm yeah. going to pray for them until I love them until I'm not like fake it until you make it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And well- it's it's really one it's it's, it's being a Christian right. Um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on the cross. As he's being killed, Christ says, "Father, forgive them." You know that's how we should be. Um, 
And uh, sadly, um, even when we are not wronged, um, we we hate people who do not agree with us. Um, you know, and that's it's sad. It's it's really saddening to me. Um, you know, I'm it's it's sad to me that you would think that people who'd be harshest against David Platt would be the unbelievers, but it's actually in many cases the believers, and that really says a lot about what's happening here. It's really really concerning. This wouldn't have happened five years ago. No, um, people just said, okay, he's praying for his president. That's it. But so much has changed. We become so much more radical on this issue over the last five years that it becomes a massive controversy. I hope people are paying attention as to what's really happening here. Um, you know, this is concerning. It made me, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but it made me think of this verse. Um, I would just want to share with you, which I'm sure you're familiar with, but I had just heard of this verse. So it was on my mind. Um, it was because uh, I saw people online who criticizing the pastor enlisting all of Trump's sins, right? Why would you pray for him? He's blah, 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 talking about uh, cheating on his wife and all this other stuff. I was like, this first just popped into my head and it was uh, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, swindlers, Mm -hmm. evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I receive. Mm -hmm. But the tax collector stood at a distance, unwilling to even unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. I tell you this, that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. And that just, that's like, to me, it's like, you, that's what Christianity is about. Like, it's not about going into comment threads and talking about how evil this other person is and, and how much better you are. <laughs> like, anyway, a little emotional. My favorite thing about that verse is that uh, the epitome the icon of evil is. Sorry, sorry. What would you say? Your favorite thing about what? My favorite thing about that verse is that the the icon. It's happening. It's happening. He's getting red pills. It's happening. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll stop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. The tax collector is the evil represent. The representation <laughs> of evil on earth is the tax collector. I think that's <laughs> awesome. Um, so, I you know if uh, if Christianity gets more behind that philosophy, uh, who knows? I it could be converted. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Samuel. I um I want to ask you uh, where can people follow you? Or Carter, you you've got a, a little outro you're going to do, or why don't you tell us? Uh, where well, can it's you? it's always better to ask the guest. Okay. So, Samuel, where would you like people to follow you? What would you like them to do to support you? Oh, um, huh, yeah, just yeah. So, um, as you mentioned earlier, um. Um, on Twitter, I am um, at slow to write of S L O W T O W R I T E. Uh, I almost couldn't spell there. Um, that'd be kind of embarrassing. Um, and then uh, slow to write.com. That's my, um, my blog on Facebook. I am Samuel say, um, uh, say with an S E Y. And then, um, also, um, you know, I wasn't going to mention this, but since you mentioned it too, look, I'm very passionate about the pro-life movement and um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a fundraising to uh, raise my salary. Um, and if people are willing to consider um, supporting um, my uh, my pro-life work, um, they can email me at slowtowrite at gmail.com or just mention it to me on Facebook or Twitter. Um, and then I would be happy to talk with them and, give them more information about it. Um, 
the pro-life movement in Canada um, you know, needs more uh, men, needs more black men, uh, I think, to be involved. I'm very envious of what's happening in America with Alabama and 10 other states, I believe, who have pushed more uh, pro-life uh, bills. Um, you know, and um, over here in, in Canada, we have zero laws, you know, at all, um, you know, um, to to protect any preborn baby. Uh, we are one of only three nations across the entire uh, world next to uh, beautiful countries uh, with beautiful regimes like China and North Korea who have zero um, uh, laws on abortion. So Canada desperately needs um, more people in the pro-life movement and I'm trying to be one of them. So if people are willing to support me, um, I'd be happy to talk to them about it. So yeah, they can email me at slowtowrite at gmail.com. And uh, I believe uh, that's it. Great. Um, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today, Samuel. Uh, it's been a great, great discussion, super enlightening for me and and helpful. And I think also to uh, a lot of the people who listen to our show who are Christian and kind of confused and concerned about what's happening in, in mm. the um, So really appreciate your time. Carrie, do you have anything to add? Any uh, final comments? Thank you so much, Samuel. Uh, come back and see us in a year when Carter Carter will be talking about how I've won him over. <laughs> I will not come back unless he becomes a Christian. <laughs> that's not manipulative at all. No, it's not. <laughs> I don't know that that's the best. Uh... <laughs> I guess I'm not coming back, right? Is that what's happening here? <laughs> no, I, I enjoyed it. I, I appreciate it. I was very nervous, um, but I, I got more comfortable over time. Um, um, I'm so used to writing, you know, and just, there's no editing, sorry, there's plenty of editing when you're writing, uh, when you're, when you're talking, ah, you, you're just talking, right? Yeah. There's, there's no editing button. Um, so I uh, thank you for making me comfortable and I appreciate, um, hanging out with you guys. So hopefully people will enjoy it. Um, I trust they will. So thank you very much. Yeah, I think they did. I think they did. So thanks again. Um, Thank you everyone for watching and we will return as always next week. Uh, I don't even know who we have on next week, but 11 a.m. Pacific time and every morning daily Kofefi, uh with Carter and Carrie. So thanks again, everyone for watching. Please go to uh, subscribe star or follow us on or subscribe to us on YouTube uh, to help support the show. Uh, take care.